Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Zorro.com. Zorro.com is where you'll find everything you need for businesses of any size and almost any industry. They have tools, equipment, and supplies for everything you need. Whether you need stuff for industries like electrical, plumbing, manufacturing, or more, Zorro's got it from brands you know and trust. And Zorro.com offers amazing customer service from real people based in the U.S. Visit Zorro.com slash watch, all lowercase, to sign up for Zmail and get 15% off your first order. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me on the line, the world's foremost expert in Rodgers and Hammerstein, it's Andy Greenwald. I believe it's Hammerstein. God, that's the second Um, time today I've done that. Listen, listen, Chris. First of all, thanks for joining me here in my (laughs) office, the (laughs) parking lot at Anonymous Content where I do some of my best podcasting. No free ads. Second, I am very excited to talk to you about the premiere of Watchmen last night, but I'm having trouble getting my thoughts together now that I found out that you had to bring in an outside consultant to talk about the musical theater element of the show when you didn't realize you had Broadway Danny Rose right here. I know. So Juliet right Littman is on the second half of this show, and we had a really interesting conversation about the importance of the musical Oklahoma to the first episode of Watchmen and the reimagining of that musical with the most the latest production of it in New York City. And today is going to be a full spoiler episode of the first episode of Watchmen. Obviously, everybody was talking about it last night, and Andy and I are going to break down the episode, but then Juliet and I had a sort of sidebar conversation about it. That's the second half. And apparently, I didn't need to do that because I've got Frank Rich with me. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, should we just riff on Carousel instead for like 10 minutes? (laughs) Because I can do that. And I, I just think you know a guy, you know? I just, I'm, I'm, I'm flummoxed. So, so basically, you want me to have takes about this premiere episode that do not focus on the 45 seconds that featured a reimagining of Oklahoma. Yeah, but then Don Johnson does a whole number at the dinner table. Oh, is that off limits too? <laughs> no, you can just let it rip, man. You want to go first. What did you think of the first episode? I do want to start where you just ended, which is to say, of all the types of cocaine highs there are, I think doing a fat rail and then rejoining your extended family for a warm glass of Zinfandel and an even warmer rendition of a show tune. Of people will say we're in love, yeah. Kissing your wife of many years. I mean, that is a very rosy-cheeked and rose-colored glasses version of of cocaine ingestion, and I support it. Yeah, that was was very... I guess in the in the alternate world of of Watchmen, like recreational <laughs> coke abuse while in front of children is kind of not frowned upon. Well, why would it be if it makes everyone better? You know what I mean? Like that was <laughs> the most delightful. And I know that's not a word we're supposed to use to describe uh, Oklahoma, but we get the musical, but we can use it to describe Don Johnson's performance. I mean, what a social. I mean, no free ads, but man, cocaine seems like it's great for the whole family. You want to put that on the poster? Uh, I can feel okay. brands fleeing the watch right now. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this is, this is a podcast. It is the free to call it as we see it. Um, all right, let's take a step back and set the table before Regina King and Don Johnson sit down in it and, and talk about this. Yeah, so, I can actually, I mean, if I'm happy to, I think we we agree on the episode with some slight differences of opinion somewhere in there, but do you want to give me your sort of opening gambit here? Well, I actually want to move back even further and just say what a great experience it was to watch the show when it premiered last night. I And I'm not just saying this. This is not like reverse humble bragging that I used to get screeners. It was really nice to make an evening of a new show on HBO on Sunday night and just really enjoy it and be, you know, I'd, I'd kept myself mostly in the dark. I hadn't read the reviews, although I could certainly see how positive they were, which was a great thing. Um, and made me feel even better about my decision to only turn the television on to watch Watchmen and to not watch uh, the giant space squid fall on the Philadelphia Eagles in Dallas earlier in the night. And for longtime listeners of The Watch should know that Jay Ferguson, star Briar Patch, my nemesis on the football field, called me at 9 a.m. and asked if I was too much of a coward to watch the game with him. And I believe we all know the answer is yes. Yes, I was. So I was in a perfectly good mood and ready to watch the show uh, 
starting at 9 p.m. last night. Did you use right. Did you use having to watch Watchmen as the reason you couldn't hang out with Jay? I definitely considered it. I floated it. I, I, you know, I sort of ran it around in my mouth a little bit to hear how it sounds. And instead, I just did the more age-appropriate 42-year-old thing, which is just at a certain point, stop replying. <laughs> Good. Uh, which is which is okay. Which is okay once you have children across the age of forty. You don't. You just don't have to. Anyway, so let's walk it back a minute. This whole thing feels surprising, and what I mean is, from the beginning, we knew both from talking to Damon and then also the little drips and drabs of information that came out about the show that this was not going to be what anyone expected a a television series based on the beloved DC comic book Watchmen to be. There was a long time between the announcement before we, you know, officially heard anything about it, before we saw any images from it. There was a moment when it seemed like HBO was being stingy with the screeners. You and I know Damon, and uh, he, by the way, this morning texted and said that he's very eager to come talk to us about it on the podcast, which is going to be great. He tends to be judgmental about his own work, and so he was setting out some very mixed, if not negative or despairing vibes, the vibe that continued into some of the interviews he did. So there were question marks, right? There were a lot of question marks going into this. And then the robust wave of positive critical attention was one thing, but it really felt, and I do want to review the show, not just the reaction to the show, but it really felt it tapped into something. And I don't mean it tapped into societal relevance with its focus on white supremacy in the year 2019. It seemed to tap into a desire to be dazzled and surprised and entertained by a TV show. Yes. And that, and people who listen to the show know that we love stuff like this, but it made the experience much fuller and richer to know that um, there was a lot of goodwill and uh, kind of shared incredulity going on that was really fun and made it fun to both watch it and then to you know actually get extremely online afterwards. Most Here's my final headline after this long, long preamble, which was, it was a blast to watch. And I think I want to start there before we get into anything else. It was surprising and quick-moving and uh, well-paced and just super entertaining. And we often talk about it, how hard it is to start anything, both as a viewer and certainly, you know, as a creator. It started with a bang, and I really appreciated that. I thought you could really feel the the creative team behind this show, um, both writing writing rules or adhering to rules of television or just popular entertainment and then simultaneously tearing up those rules as they went along. So you get a very thought-provoking, challenging show. I mean, I watched it with my wife who doesn't know really much at all about The Watchmen. Ditto. Ditto. And she was engrossed, but also was like, is that a Watchman? Is that person matter? Dude, like who, who is Jeremy Irons playing? So there was definitely the guessing and I think that there are going to be different levels of appreciation for the show until it kind of establishes everything and when they choose to show all their cards will be sort of the biggest question of, of, this, of this season. I'm going to just be watching it one episode per week. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. But mm-hmm. there was a moment about, I don't know, 20-25 minutes into the show. I was really enjoying it. Obviously, it, it's it's got that incredibly gripping opening sequence that recreates the uh, Black Wall Street massacre in Tulsa, and uh, which Victor Luckerson wrote about for The Ringer a while ago. And 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 I think Victor is going to be joining us on the pod in the weeks to come to talk about Great. that. But you know, you are immediately in, you know gripped by the by what you're seeing, and then you're thrown into this completely new world with no montage about how we got there, no. No explainer about who's president, what redfordations are, etc. And while my brain is trying to catch up with everything that they're throwing out at me, there's just this moment where uh, Don Johnson's character, Judd, who's a police chief in Tulsa, goes to the house of the wife of the police officer who shot in the opening moments of the show once it gets out of uh, the Black Wall Street massacre. And he goes to the, her house to tell her that there's been a shooting and that you know, that her husband's in, in surgery. And the wife sort of assumes this is going badly, that that her husband's not going to make it, and says, he liked you, you know, to, to mm-hmm. J- Don Johnson's character. And he leans over the table, and he said, he likes me. Mm-hmm. And it is such a great line. It's mm-hmm. such a great delivery. And you realize, oh, man, I'm in safe hands. And that's, that's sometimes what you need when you have a very thought-provoking, challenging 
rule-shredding show is to simultaneously be in the hands of professionals and to be in the hands of people who know you've got to have these human moments. You've got to have contrast between, there's got to be a dynamic between the scenes. There's got to be pace. There's got to be music. There's got to be action. And they get that. And I think that that was sometimes what I maybe was missing from Leftovers. And it's sometimes, mm-hmm. I think, missing from a lot of shows is a sense of, of how to make this shit, how to do this. Well, the other thing about that line, and I agree with you, I love that moment too. In, in 360 degrees, I love the performance, I love it, but I love the confidence of it. And one of the other nice things about watching a show made by someone like Damon, who has done this before, for people at HBO who have done this before, but also who, you know, part of the contract is that, you know, Damon is, has the right to make his own mistakes and make his own choices, is that that line, and I know this seems like a small thing, but when I hear a line like that, I'm like, that line got left alone. No, there didn't need to be any extra notes or explanation as what it meant about the future prognosis of the cop character yeah. we've only just met. You know what I mean? It, it, it allows him to have enough faith in the audience, which is to, to know what's going on or to follow it or to appreciate the line and not, you know, not to have their hands held, but also you know, for us to know that we're being respected and we're going to have to pay attention because to be worthy of that respect. So it is little moments like that that add up to the whole. It's also this combination that I think he really found. Uh, it's a voice he found with great confidence, you know, in the, certainly, you know, I'm going to be on brand say in the second two seasons, the latter two seasons, the leftovers, this mixture of audacity and craft. And the audacity of it is, you know, all over the place with a show like this, just to do it at all, you know, something that is sacrosanct to fans and to do a completely new version of it in this way to begin with an absolutely devastating actual historical moment that, you know, that, that Damon personally doesn't hold any claim to other than being an American. You know, he's not from Oklahoma. He's not an African-American creator. And yet he wanted to begin his show in one of the most, uh, painful ways possible, right? All the way into doing things like staging Oklahoma in the middle of it and naming the episode after yeah. a lyric from, from, from one of the songs. Um, mixed with craft. And this moment I'm thinking of that happened just before the one you're, you're talking about is, again, like a future world, a sci-fi world, is made through details. Um, when we think about something like Minority Report, which is a movie you and I both like a lot, we think about the weird interface with the computers, right? Because that seemed both specific and understandable, but also a giant swing. And we remember that. It felt like a future that isn't ours, but could be. Similarly, this idea of the gun being buzzed in and out like, yeah. a, like, a, like a delivery guy at a non-doorman building in New York City, immediately we understand the physics of it. And we also begin to presume the politics of it, like what, why it's like that, what this world might mean. And then to deploy it early in the show, it immediately tells us we're in a different universe, but with the same frustrations and, and, and fear and politics and resentment and all these things. And then the way it was cut, and you know, credit to Nicole Costello who directed the episode too, it built tension in such a delicious way that could only be done by someone who has done a scene like that before. Yes. So all of that comes together in a specific moment like that, and it makes you, you know, I, I don't want to say sign up because we've already signed up for the ride, but it makes you feel confident that you want the right ticket. And that's like six minutes into the show. Well, I would say that across the board, and this kind of goes, what we're both saying is the same thing, which is that there's tons of fireworks going off in this episode that makes you say, what's that? What's going on? What's that? What does mm-hmm. that mean? It's the other things that are happening in the center, in the center of frame with these characters. And it's crucial because you're asking, who is this person? And that is different because you can have... All, all, the highest concept that you want. You know what I mean? And I think that there's a lot of harder genre stuff out there. If you're really interested in, I'm not trying to disparage any other show, but there's like, something like The Expanse has always been difficult for me to get into because I feel like the this, the the main pitch of that show is the the sort of, fully realized depth of its of its plot and its world building and i yet it was hard for me to kind of get into like the characters when i tried watching it this you can watch and be like okay we know where the squids come from because of what happens at the end of the watchman comic and if you've read the comic you have an idea of who the jeremy irons character is and all these things but if you just are watching television you can you can't do much better than having don johnson lou gossett jr and regina king being these incredibly intriguing people right I mean, it, it's it's 
yeah, there's a construction and a thoughtfulness that you absolutely appreciate. What I'm trying to think where our next pivot point is in terms of in terms of discussing a show like this. I think it's. I mean, so, so there's a there's a sensation that you're when you're watching it that you wonder whether they're sending everything on the first snap, right? Like whether or not whether or not anybody is there in the defensive backfield. So you know, I I think that immediately you're like, well, what the fuck are you guys going to do next week, right? I, I mean, they they certainly went all the way for it, and I would say that if, if I had any uh, criticisms, and there aren't that many, because again, like. It just feels great, both as a former critic, as a fan, and as someone trying to make something now, to see fearlessness and to see chances taken and to see nothing much left on the field because it's you know it's it's inspiring and it's exciting. And this is the sort of project where even if it all falls apart, and if we have Damon on in the first half of the season, he'll probably say to us, "Oh, guys, it's going to fall apart," and we can choose not to believe him. Um, it was worth it. You know, because what yeah. else are we doing this for other than to take big chances and big swings? That said, the one criticism I had is that I was getting major McBain vibes from Don Johnson early. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, you know, singing how much he loved his wife and then being like, you know what? Despite having a all-time historic night and, and surviving and thriving with the single greatest use of recreational cocaine on, in film history, I'm going to get dressed again. And even though everyone knows my face, right? He's apparently the only one who doesn't wear a mask. And he literally said, it's my funeral. He says, it's my funeral. It's the end of the world and it's my funeral. And then he gets in the car and drives alone down an empty road. Now, maybe he was going somewhere else. You know, the only other possibility was that there was a heel turn that was hidden in there. And maybe we'll see something else from him in flashbacks because the whole mystery of how he can be who he is and have his face shown while no one else can is, certainly interesting because it's not like he was living in secrecy but that that was kind of a funny moment where you could see the strings but again it is a master class in introducing a character and making you care for him and be interested in him in a relatively small amount of time and that you know you have I, I will i don't know if he would but i have to credit damon's time on lost where he would just do entire backstories for new characters in between you know two commercial breaks well you can feel that all so, across the board you can you can feel that even though we have only like a, a passing to, like just a few moments with him in the in the episode itself, that the Tim Blake Nelson, the Looking Glass character, has mm-hmm. is fully is it's got a full biography. It's got a full idea about who he is. They already know that in that first episode. It's not oh we're going to put it together as we go along, and maybe this person will catch on and we'll keep them around. It's it's completely realized. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the 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 idea, and I think Damon has brought this up a couple of times, so it's fair game is this idea of responsibility. And I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I talked to Juliet in the second half of the podcast a little bit about, uh, for lack of... Responsibility to, to, to Broadway. Uh, but for lack of a better term, like intertextuality and like the idea of like the relationship this show has with the text that it's drawing from. And one of those mm-hmm. texts is history, right? And so I wanted mm-hmm. to ask a little bit about the responsibility the show has both to the, to the intellectual property that it's liberally borrowing from, but not... Uh, not necessarily recreating, and also from an especially dark stain on American history that isn't talked about nearly enough. Well, let's let's do one and two. First, let's talk about the source material. So, you know, everybody listening to this podcast certainly knows, and probably people who aren't listening know as well, that this show basically just uh, builds on and stunts on the sacred text of the 1986 comic book maxi series by alan moore and uh, dave gibbons right like that this is not that this is set in a world where all of that happens at least we seem to think that that's the case but 30 years on personally i think this is the only way to make this interesting and to make it worth doing we've said this on previous pods i'll say it again the problem with the watchman film was that it was a slavish frame by frame recreation of something that existed already in another format. We didn't need that again. And particularly in a moment where comic book culture is culture where, um, you know, it seems like I'm not saying comic book movie discourse is becoming like Gamergate, but like people are dragging Francis Ford Coppola for not liking something. Um, did you see, uh, did you see the, the James Gunn's Instagram response to that? I, I just can't. If I he can't if he's trolling, then like I salute you like a like 
all the firemen at, at the backdraft funeral. Like, I will stand over the flag and salute you. But if not, it is the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen where he writes this long, long caption about, like, his father hated Star Wars and his yeah. grandfather hated the gangster movies and his grand great-grandfather hated Westerns or whatever. And he's just like, Maybe it's just movies and maybe they're all, they're good movies and bad movies. But the picture that he puts over the caption is Groot talking to Rocket. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's like, look, I don't need my dad to understand why I think future is good. You know what I mean? Like, it's fine. My dad is 80 years old. And you mean, I might, you mean you know, future, I, like, like future Hendrix? Not, not, yeah. I don't mean like who, who was featured on Watchmen last night. I don't mean. Yeah, I don't mean like the future because I have I have doubts about that myself. Yeah, I'm just saying like I don't need you don't you don't need your dad to like your stuff. It's like the most anti-punk sentiment ever. You be like, please think this thing is worthwhile too. It's not his job to like your shit. It's your job to make good shit and move on and like his. You know what I mean? That, it's just beyond me. But anyway, all of this though does speak to this thing that worries me about collecting culture, geek culture. Anyway, which is that it stops becoming a viable new path to tell stories and becomes instead a mausoleum to nostalgia or childhood or fandom where everything has to be sealed in the Mylar bag and never taken down or read or, or like the toys on Steve Carell's shelf and 40-year-old virgin. These are, if we're going to consider comic book stories as our modern myths, then they need to be told and retold and regurgitated and remixed to still have life and have value. And this is a big swing. And I think one of the things that, probably made Damon feel ultimately okay doing it is not only knowing someone else would have done it if he hadn't, but then in 10 years, fuck it, maybe five years, someone else will try too. Right. Like that's just where we are with, with, with culture and with stories these days. And I'm okay with that as long as we keep trying and keep pushing. Um, so that said, one of the aspects of the comic book that I think it's undervalued when it's discussed is how it was both extremely tied to the moment where it was created in a world where comic books were just beginning to be shaken free of, you know, the wham, bam, pow of the Batman series, even though that predates it by 20 years and were showing that they could do dark and interesting and complicated stories, but also that Watchmen more than anything else was about comic books and about the heroes and, or the way we look to them and, you know, actually what some of their tendencies might look like. And more than that, the storytelling possibilities of a comic book medium with the, I forget the exact number of panels, but every issue of Watchmen, every page has the same number of panels on it. And it has the precision of a clock, which was one of the, you know, hallmarks of the show, uh, of, the, of the comic book story, and then also made an appearance last night, Watches and Clocks. There wasn't much yet that I could see in this show that took that mantle of meta-storytelling and I am curious if that's something that Damon hopes to do at some point, whether it's about comic book storytelling or more interestingly about how we tell TV stories. You know, if he's going to take that piece of it up, not just the um, sort of radical reimagining of history that, that he has done. But that, that's all, that's pretty much the only fealty to the comic book that interests me at this point. Everything else feels fresh and interesting, which is not something you can always say about adaptations of over 30-year-old work. Yeah, I I am I thought that the reason why the Black Wall Street massacre to to the extent that something like that quote unquote works, you know, it that it it matters to the world. And not only that, it connects this story to our world. Uh, often I find that one of the only things that I find like repulsive about like the last 10 10, 10 or so years of superhero movies is how casually and unthoughtfully they reference real-life tragedies, real-life historical events, and make it more about, like, wouldn't it be cool if Batman was triggered by 9-11? You know, like, it's mm-hmm. it's more about that kind of stuff than it is about, like, no, fuck Batman. Don't worry about, like, whether or not Bruce Wayne was, like, you know, radicalized by this. Let's talk about, like, all this, all these other people. And so far we've seen, you can start to see the connections between what happens in the opening sequence and even though the things that are happening in the quote-unquote present day of Watchmen are different than what's happening in our world, that will be still a filter through which to view the show that connect with that show. It's not going to be this thing that removes the Regina King character totally. from us. Angela's not going to seem unknowable because she's dealing with aliens. She's going to seem knowable because she is a product of 
the same America that we're all a product of. It's just that it happens to involve squids falling from the sky. I think that the point you're making is a really good one. And I think there's something even potentially more insidious about what a generation of comic movies have done to our understanding of our world and horror, which is to say it takes destruction on a scale that we are now, unfortunately, all too familiar with in a post 9-11 world. And, And again, I say that as someone who was in New York City and had the privilege of never having seen or lived through anything like this, which is not the case for many people all over the world. But only to say that what comic book movies do, whether with thought or with a lack of thought, is say like, yes, we took an entire country, made up country, and dropped it from the sky like a like a crisp bounce pad in Avengers: Age of Ultron, and hundreds of thousands of people died, but it was worth it because otherwise Ultron would have destroyed the planet. It sort of normalizes citywide massacres or destruction to say that they are part. You know, it's the acceptable cost of a larger scale galactic event, which sort of puts horror into a knowable realm, right? Like, well, at least there was a good reason for it. And and it sort of ascribes this weird binary morality on top of events, as opposed to saying, Jesus, someone fell out of the sky and 200,000 people died. What do we even do with that, right? That's what made Watchmen so radical in many ways, is that this Watchmen, is that it began with an absolutely um, unthinkable, unimaginable horror. But here's the thing. It was a real horror. And the fact that Many people watching the show don't know that is another reason to tell this story. And I say this not to hold myself up as some exemplar. Like, until I read that story that you're talking about, that Victor wrote, like, this is not a history that I know. This is not a history that I was taught. And why is that? And so it's especially interesting and honestly exciting for a big-budget, highly-hyped show to find an, quote-unquote, alternate reality that is actually our reality. I find this so much more interesting to start a story here than something, and I'm sorry to, to, to beat up once again on the internet punching bag, but something like Confederate, which you know is now never going to happen, but people might remember that was David Benioff and D.B. Weiss's purported follow-up to Game of Thrones, where they like, you know, full Owen Wilson and Royal Tenenbaum's voice, like, we all know the North won the Civil War, but what this show presupposes is, what if they didn't? Right. That feels really cavalier when you actually have this deep scar and deep wound that has never even been talked about? Why do we need to create a whole new horror show when there's a real one that hasn't even been explored? So it's fascinating. The next thing is, I'm very curious what happens over the next few weeks because, you know, the internet has this new, at least in terms of like the Twitter sphere, or like the way we talk about stuff, has this very intense at the moment police state mentality, right? And so whose story is this to tell? And I think Damon's been incredibly delicate and careful about this. And it's something that I'm very curious to see how it unfolds. I admire personally that he took a big swing and he educated himself and he made it. He staffed an incredibly diverse writer's room and a diverse cast and is attempting to wrestle with things. I think that is much more admirable than cowering away and just you know telling a, a story about your navel or about something that you know or about the friends that you you know, talk to in the pickup line at the private school here in LA. Like, I think it's much more fascinating. And then to Trojan horse it inside of a comic book show, it's really tricky. Um, but it's promising so far the way that the attitude he seems to have brought to it and also the way it's being received. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's going to be really interesting to see the shows. So I, one of the things that sort of jumped out at me and I'm, I, I can't, I didn't really see a lot today about it. So I'm not sure if this is the case, but did you get the impression that obviously Rorschach had become, I mean, this may be actually more clear to you, but did Rorschach had become like basically the avatar of the cavalry? Yes. Yeah, obviously. I mean, obviously they were using his masks, but in the comic book, if I remember correctly, it's not, he is not, that is not his his sort of uh, mission statement. What's amazing and interesting and probably the most subversive thing about it is that it's a, it's a, a really aggressive it's not a retcon. It's an aggressive exploration of what a character has come to mean. Yes. If you read Watchmen, Rorschach is sort of, he's based on a DC character called The Question, and he's basically this like pretty mentally unstable and violent sociopathic guy who used to be hang out with the heroes. And maybe it was a little bit too intense, a little bit too violent for them. And in the, in the book, though, his attitudes and methods are rough. He is one of the few people who's pursuing the truth and uh, pays the ultimate price for it, and is, you know, 
depending which how much you're squinting, is the hero or one of the main heroes of a book that is decidedly anti-hero. He has also come to represent something um, that people credit or discredit, like the sort of grim and gritty era of superheroes, where we have you know certain versions of Batman or the Punisher, which are just like very male, very violent, very focused on retribution and revenge, and that somehow being like yeah. antisocial and somehow being you know it, it, it's kind of like the Joker thing, honestly. And the fact that a character like that who existed in real life in this the world of this TV show would become the hero to uh, militia members and racists is, in a, if, you know, again, if you're existing in an uh, artificial fictional universe, kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think that that is a, that's a parry the show is making towards the sanctity of the book, right? But it's also very much in line with the comic book, which said, what if something like Superman happened? Or what if the Atom happened? Like, what if in the character of uh, Dr. Manhattan, right? What if someone really did become a quantum nuclear-powered being? Well, how long would he keep the human mask on? How long would he stay married to a human woman and sort of be a superhero around the world? How quickly would that superheroism turn into go beat, go win the Vietnam War for us? Right. Right, and how quickly past that would it become? I'm just going to go live on the live on Mars and think about time in nine dimensions. Um, so, taking a heroic ideal or or archetype um, thirty years further, right? Because the Foreshock was based on character from the '50s and '60s, and Alan Moore was like, "Well, this is kind of who you'd be in the '80s." It's really smart of Damon and his writers to say, "Well, what would that character become thirty years later?" Yeah, it's going to be the thing I was I was thinking about last night when I was watching this and, and thinking about like, how do they kind of now keep this together and move it along is um, that the, the text, the comics, the original, as, as Damon refers to the Watchmen comics as the old Testament, that that can really be the, the undergirding of this show in a lot of ways and, and, and stop it from going into like John from Cincinnati town where mm-hmm. it's incredibly smart and incredibly thought provoking. But most people other than David Milch are watching and saying, what the fuck is going on? And I think that a show with this much happening runs that risk, inevitably, right? Like, if you're going to be throwing this much information and also this many ideas at people, you run the risk of them being overwhelmed. But if you can keep that, hey, there was these events that happened, there are these characters that were introduced, and this is the aftermath of that, and this is us playing with what would happen, I'm in. Well, I also think it's an example of the best kind, the best use of genre. It's the sort of the way that I that I also really like to use it or like to think about it, right? Which is, it's the motor you can put in your vehicle to get you there and to get to to get you there faster and to get you there with style and speed and maybe draw some attention as you do it. Um, it the genre part, the comic book part, is the thing that you drop into a story that you might want to tell about white supremacy or about America in 2019 or about all these other even, you know, whether they're the historical things about um, the, the race massacre in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma as a historical piece or the sort of headier, who are we, what what have we become stuff that, you know, that John from Cincinnati drifted into, right? It's really just the, it's really just the motor to get you there. And this isn't a value judgment over the, you know, other works of art that I could mention, but the alternative often, you know, if you do it straight as a period piece, like there is a phenomenal, I'm sure, miniseries or film to be made out of what happened in Tulsa, right? But this is a big, ballsy swing to tell that story and a lot of other stories, too, and to do it in a way that's going to get a lot of eyeballs on it and make people ask a lot of questions and maybe do some Googling and research that they might not otherwise do. It's no less well-intentioned than a, you know, a rigorously uh, historical film, it's just a very different way to do it, and it's and it's a, it's an exciting way to approach it. Yeah, I agree with you, man. Uh, we can get into my conversation hey, with Juliet hey, now. How are you doing otherwise? You want to tell me anything else? Sure. Any other things like the, any other any other like side notes, characters, things, baby squids. Interested in the baby squids because oh, know I know what I wanted to ask you. So uh, yeah, the Veet stuff. Yeah, the Jeremy Iron stuff. How did you think that that played in the show? <laughs> First of all, that is that is some BDE by Jeremy Irons. <laughs> like, like that dude is just that dude. And he's just like, yeah, I'm going to come off the bench. But just like, like he never, he didn't need to get warm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know when the last time he was in a major production was, but he was ready. 
he was tanned, rested and ready to do a full nude scene and just ride horses. It was great. Um, you know, in terms of the storytelling, that was some of my favorite. Those are some of my favorites. That was my favorite scene maybe in the episode because it was so crazy and so surprising and creative and weird. And there were moments, you know, like with any pilot where you kind of have to, there has to be exposition and you have to set up people's relationships. And so this was nice to see that that very leftovers, the what the fuck is this strain was still going to be present in the show. Um, what is it going to mean for this show on in terms of this show or in terms of the extended well, Watchmen universe? I think I that know. without it, there's, it's not, yeah, it's not a spoiler to say that Damon has said that that is essentially separate from the show that they're, sh- the, uh, the rest he of the filmed show. The, they, they block shot it in Wales, right? Separate from the rest of the production. Shout out to HBO. You know, I know that Netflix has taken on another billion dollars worth of bonds or whatever. So HBO is just like, yeah. how many different countries can we shoot succession in? And then not to be left behind, they're like, hey, Damon, man, like before Brexit, let's get in there. Let's get let's get some manner shots. I think the thing that's interesting about it is that characters, it was, again, it, it was such an interesting and yet something, you know, once you read it, inevitable version of a kind of, you know, the smartest man in the universe character that we've seen before, a Tony Stark-like character who basically not only has the brain power to be, to play God, but also the resources to play God. and the story of Watchmen is basically this former hero, Ozymandias, fakes a giant space squid attack on New York, murders three million people to end the nuclear, to end the Cold War, basically. And that seems to be the world that the show exists in. The, the presence of the squid is interesting because it was sort of, a, it was fake in the original Watchmen, but at least in this world, you know, as, as Looking Glass says, right, like, do you believe transdimensional attacks are real? Um, I love that interrogation scene. That was great. Great scene. It was a great scene. It was just, it it was gripping. It was the whole world. It was just, it was a great scene. But anyway, just to say, what does someone who fixed the world and had a happy ending in his mind, what does he think 30 years later when there are clearly still, there's still a problem or two out there in the world? You know, that, that perspective of it. Because the other thing about comic books is they both have definitive endings, but then they also never really end. People just keep rebooting them or bringing the characters back, which is something DC did with the Watchmen characters recently, much to the chagrin of, of Puris and Alan Moore himself. So it's a great show to get excited about. It's a great show for us to talk about because it exists so deeply in both worlds. That, like We could talk week to week, but we could also talk about the storytelling choices and the meta text and also what it means to the industry, blah, blah, blah. It's a good one for us. Yeah. I hope we get to talk to Damon soon. It was great to talk to you. We'll have Josh uh, Schwartz and Stephanie Savage on this week for Thursday's show. And I hope, I, I don't know, have you got a chance to watch Looking for Alaska yet? No, I'm going to get into it this week. Josh was really upset that I didn't mention his really, really handsome suit that he was wearing when okay. I saw him the other night. Okay. So I just want to give shout out, shout out to that Paul Smith cut. It looked great. No free um, ads. Come on, man. <laughs> I want Paul Smith suit. You can cut all this, Kaya. I don't care. Kaya's so jet lagged, she's not even listening. Kaya, Kaya hasn't seen Watchmen. I can only imagine that this is like high key gobbledygook to her today. Kaya, did you see any baby squids in Skiji Fish Market in Tokyo? I think I ate a couple. There you go. See, there you go. Kaya so is Ozymandias. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go back into edit, dude. This 107 isn't going to edit itself. Hey, Andy, uh, we'll save it for next time, but I just expect you to have a, a comprehensive take on how you feel about the state of superhero movies next week. Oh, great. No problem. <laughs> Bye. Easy. <laughs> Thanks, Pransky. Bye. We're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with my discussion with Juliet Littman about the role the musical Oklahoma plays in the first episode of Watchmen. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by LaCroix. LaCroix sparkling water was developed to give health-conscious consumers refreshment, flavor, and sparkle with an innocent twist of zero calories, zero sweeteners, and zero sodium. Enjoy LaCroix sparkling water, a calorie, sweetener, and sodium innocent beverage with nothing artificial. LaCroix's flavors are derived from natural sources and natural fruit essences. And their newest flavor, hibiscus, is a delicious, crisp, and refreshing, just like those other flavors that include, and honestly, they say, pick your favorites. It's like picking your favorite kid. I don't even have children, but if I did, I imagine it would be like picking my favorite child to pick my favorite LaCroix flavor. Should I say key lime? Like a little, just like a little kick, you know what I mean? Mango, apricot, passion fruit. I'll tell you what I'm going to pick. It's grapefruit. 
it's grapefruit. If I'm not going regular, just pure, unflavored, I go pomplamoose. You know, I like to mix it up a little bit. LaCroix family also has six boulders, LaCroix curate flavors. And these are just zany, man. Pina fraise, pineapple, strawberry, palm baya, that's apple berry. What about mure pepino? Blackberry cucumber. Who? What is blackberry cucumber? Are you kidding me? The newly added flavors to the Nicola theme include coconut cola, cubana, and coffee exotica, all of which contain no caffeine or alcohol. It's only naturally essence flavor, dog. LaCroix sparkling waters and LaCroix curate sparkling waters are gluten-free, vegan, kosher, and non-GMO, Whole30 approved, and environmentally friendly. LaCroix cans are perpetually sustainable and recyclable. I want to tell you why I love LaCroix. Have I not done a good enough job yet? Or do you remain unconvinced by my dedication to this to this brand? They are the, my beverage of choice right now. I go pure. I go grapefruit. Apparently, I'm about to get addicted to blackberry cucumber, the Murray Propino. That's wild. LaCroix is a healthier alternative for you and your lifestyle and is available nationwide. For more information and a full list of retailers, visit LaCroixWater.com and join the LaCroix community on social at LaCroix Water. Okay, so Juliet Littman's here with me. Hi, Juliet. Hi. Love um, to be on the watch. Thank you so much for having me. I love having you on the watch. <laughs> I wanted to have you on because we're talking about Watchmen today. And I think there are sort of three texts that are informing this show right now. There's obviously the original comic book, the original graphic novel of, of, of the Watchmen. I'll just say I know only what Allison Herman covered in her article about the show on right. The Ringer about the original text. Right. And then there is actual United States history with the Black Wall Street Massacre, which we're going to talk about next week, hopefully, with Victor Luckerson. And then, surprisingly, there is the musical Oklahoma. You are being brought in here to The Watch to talk about the third thing. And I, I guess, tell me a little bit about your reaction to Oklahoma being such a prominent part of this show, because it's not only just do Don Johnson and his wife go to a performance of it in Tulsa, but Don Johnson's character, Judd, who obviously meets his end at the end of the first episode, is also named Judd, which is a character from Oklahoma. Yes, the villain of Oklahoma, the musical. And crucially, I think the current production of Oklahoma, which is playing in New York, yes. is in itself a reimagining of a of a very hallowed and very highly vaunted text yes. itself, the Rodgers and Hammerstein yes. musical. Yes, this is so so fascinating. I saw Oklahoma, Oklahoma uh, like won a ton of Tonys. Like everyone who's seen it has been like blown away. I think Frank Rich wrote like just an absolute rave of it in New York Magazine, mm-hmm. and I saw it Labor Day weekend, and I have not stopped thinking about it since. It is an incredible interpretation of the first Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, which was the completely redefined musicals at the time. I think it came out in 1943. And, uh, which is like pretty crucially still during World War II. Yes. And um, Rodgers and Hammerstein, I mean, excuse me, Oklahoma in the 40s is probably even bigger than Hamilton was right now. Yeah. To musicals and to culture in general. And so essentially it is about... Um, a group of people living in the territory that will soon become Oklahoma, but it's not yet a state at the turn of the century. Uh, it is about Curly and Lori is the heart of the of the musical. It's their relationship. They are going to a box social and Curly and Lori have like a on again, off again relationship. And it's um, like a lot of comedy of manner, not even comedy of manners, but there's a lot of like, he doesn't want to go with me bad enough. So I'm going to go with this other yes, guy. And the, yeah. the guy, the other guy she goes with is Judd, who to me uh, always reminded me of Curly from Of Mice and Men kind of, yes. which is sort of like, um, which nothing about his mental capabilities, but just sort of uh, a very kind of crude and strong. Um, possibly sort of, dangerous. Possibly dangerous farmhand. And he is dangerous. He is made out to be dangerous in the initial Oklahoma. And the new production on Broadway right now... Which really, is directed by like Daniel Fish. Is that the guy? Yes. Yeah, right. uh, it's, it's honestly incredible. First of all, the lights are on for the almost all of the performance, which is really fascinating. It's at the Circle in the Square Theater. Uh, you could, There's a couple of people. You, you can get seats where you sit on the stage. The woman who plays Ado Annie. One thing I forgot to mention is that the kind of the comic relief of Oklahoma, the original production, is a result of Ado Annie, mm-hmm. who um, is kind of like a loose woman, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And she falls for a um, a peddler named Ali Hakim, who's supposed to be, if per- not Persian, right? Yeah, he's yeah. supposed to be Persian, and it's a pretty like distasteful and offensive 
um, portrayal of like a quote unquote gypsy salesman kind of thing. And I was like, how the fuck are they going to make this musical acceptable and like celebrated on Broadway in 2019 with Ali Hackam in it? And in the Broadway production, Ali Hackam is like very knowing and sort of um, is in on it with the audience. But there's just so much going on in this musical that I, I haven't even mentioned any of the connections to Watchmen yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what's really, what really stood out to me um, a couple of important connections between the musical and Watchmen is, first of all, the idea of statehood. I was really the twist when um, Regina King's character, who is named Angela, she mentions when she's presenting to the class that she's from Vietnam, which right. is a state. Right. And I think so there's like this idea of like the actual territory of the United States is like in flux. In yeah, because in the original comic, Dr. Manhattan, who in the show is is sort of seen in the background on TV yeah. on Mars, he helped win the Vietnam War for Nixon. Right. Prolonging his presidency. Right. And then um, Nixon gives way to like Robert Redford, right? Yes. <laughs> and so just amazing. So like the idea of the physical United States, I think actually really connects with Oklahoma, the musical, which is really fascinating. Um, but then there's also this whole component of almost like vigilante justice, which is obviously what Watchmen is about. And at the end of Oklahoma, the musical, Curly kills Judd or Judd falls on his own knife while he's fighting with Curly after he is like assaulted Lori, essentially. Yeah. And then they have a really quick trial at the end and like a trial of the people who are just living in this part of Oklahoma. Right. And they just, they acquit Curly and then they sing the famous song Oklahoma, which plays in Watchmen. Yes. And so I think that, that, that part of vigilante justice, obviously and sort of just like community justice obviously really connects with Watchmen. Um, and then I think crucially, I believe Curly is played by a black man in the production that they see of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And the current production on Broadway also has a pretty um, interracial cast. There's black cast members and white cast members. Curly is played by a white guy. But I think the idea of of race was so baked into Oklahoma as a result of the Ali Hackam character in an offensive way that these new interpretations of it have kind of like reclaimed ideas about race to make it more about some of the other concepts of Watchmen. Right. And obviously the about Oklahoma and Watchmen is doing that as well. Right. So we obviously live in a time where Andy and I probably the most used phrase in the last three years that we've used as intellectual property. And yeah. so everything is essentially based on a pre-existing property. And that's been a business decision for Hollywood because there's a floor to, if you are doing something that people already know, their interest is going to be higher than if they have to figure out what, what this new original right. story is you're telling. That's not new. But the engagement with the intellectual property varies wildly because you can have something as sort of creative and personal as say, uh, Denny Villeneuve's Blade Runner sequel, or some of the things that like you know Mike Flanagan has done, where he's he's made like uh, Ouija and and ha Haunting of Hill House that are really 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 creative, and then they're sort of like very basic, like oh this is just going to be a more or less a re remake of this pre existing thing, but under the idea that it's a reboot or a sequel. But Watchmen feels actually really different to me, and if you get a chance, you should check out Damon Lindelof's. Instagram because he's reposted this long memo manifesto whatever you want to call it <laughs> that he had originally released uh, when Watchmen was announced and it's essentially like a three page letter to fans but to everybody to haters to fans to critics to anybody with a passing interest in this property where he talks about why he's doing this how much trepidation he has about doing it how much he's sort of haunted by what people might think of it but the most crucial thing of it is that he essentially calls this a remix and he talks about the idea that he is playing with some of the original bass lines and rhythms of the, of the comic, but is essentially making something new and for him, crucially urgent, something that's for the time of Theresa May and Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump and that feels incredibly contemporary. And despite the fact that this show is obviously taking place in an alternative future history, I guess you would call it, it does feel incredibly urgent. It does feel like it, 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 it's flashing lights at us from our world. Does yes. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the remix note is really interesting because I thought the music and the soundtrack were really awesome. Right. And the abrupt Trent cuts. Reznor, yeah. Yeah, and the abrupt cuts to the music were also, um, I really felt them. They felt like that kind of like sudden stop, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the Oklahoma stuff didn't really come together for me until the end because... 
this is a spoiler podcast? It is a spoiler for the first episode. Okay, because I, I only seen one. Don Johnson's character is named Judd and he dies. Yes. And he's it, lynched. And he's lynched. Yeah. Yes, he is lynched. And I was just thinking about that the Oklahoma on Broadway is also a remix. I mean, it also yeah, it's like what, yeah. in like it's it the music is acoustic and it's like a just a totally different uh there's not a big orchestra. There's like a you know, like six people in the band or whatever. And it's just really fascinating to find the ways that, you know, now that it's it feels like so much of the news has been thrown into like a prism and read and like come out in a totally new way. Yeah. You can also go back and look at these old texts to to reinterpret them. And I think that's what's happening with Oklahoma and why it's such a good match for Watchmen is that when Oklahoma came out, it also was about like the psychological underpinnings of this female character, Lori. And like, it was as much about a psychological exploration as you could have. How so? Like in terms of like who she's choosing to be with? Yes. And that there's two like competing relationships. The one with Ado Annie and Will is about like sort of she's like a loose woman and he really wants her, but he's kind of dumb. He's like a cowboy. He's come in from Kansas City, right? Yeah, like just, I, I know I've seen Oklahoma, but Kansas, like, I, yeah. yeah. He, uh, that's when they sing everything's up to date in Kansas City. Okay. He just has gotten back from Kansas City and he now is back and he wants to marry Ado Annie, but she's in, interested in Ali Hackham. And that's a real sort of like slapstick relationship. But on the other hand, there's Curly and Lori, which she's, it's another love triangle. And in the newer interpretations, her ambivalence is a much bigger part of it. Like, it's not so clear that she's just not interested in Right, because in the original, it's a little bit more screwball, right? Yes. Like, it's like Judd and her are flirting, and that's, oh, what a beautiful morning, right? That's her and Curly, yes. That's her and Curly. Yeah, that's and then, So her and Curly are kind of flirting. Yes. But it's like, it's still like sort of the, uh, you know, turn of the century sort of like yeah. courtship r- rituals that you're going through, and like, there, there's like a lot of like, you know, screwball kind of comedy around yeah. that, right? Yes. And Don Johnson sings the most beautiful song in the musical, which is people will say we're in love right. at the dinner scene in Watchmen, which is kind of like the last happy moment in Oklahoma. And the last happy moment on this episode. And the last happy moment in Watchmen. And it's sort of, it was a really incredible moment for him to like kind of walk around this safe domestic space mm-hmm. where you also have no idea what's happening because it's a mixed race family. I, I, not knowing anything about Watchmen, didn't really understand a no, lot of I relationships. No, I think one of, the, one of the great moves of this episode is the balance of what do we give people so that they have at least some idea of the dimensions of what we're looking at without knowing who all the characters are or what all the relationships are. So you see Angela and her husband have, I think, three uh, white children. Yes. And uh, there's, there's no explanation made to, as to like how that happened or what, what the deal is with that. And like you said, you referred to this earlier, but Angela was born in Vietnam before it became a state and then became a police officer there when it did and then moved to Tulsa. We don't know why. Right. So there's a lot of like breadcrumbs, but we don't know where it's leading yet. Right. And it's then this really identifiable moment of a family at dinner having like kind of like reminiscing, kind of busting each other's balls, but also reminiscing. And then Don Johnson gets up and he sings and it's it's so beautiful. And like in the musical, it's kind of like the last happy moment where there's seems that there's a lot of anything is kind of possible at that time. And then mm-hmm. in both, it gives way to violence. And then... And both, it kind of gives way to then, like, well, how will we rectify this, or how you know what what comes next, essentially. And they couldn't be more different, the musical and Watchmen. Yeah. But the connections really, they they really resonated for me, and I have found it fascinating to think about for the last like eighteen hours. Is the Judd character in the new version of Oklahoma, the musical? Um, what's like the, the the play on his? What's the spin on his character in this version? He's a lot more sympathetic. You don't you don't know a lot about him. Lori seems to be considering him as like an option. She's mm-hmm. she is scared of him, but like she's also finds him alluring. You don't get the sense that he is just straight up dangerous. There's also a whole other part of this musical that they turn off the lights and they just show these projected black and white the stage action is in black and white projected against one of the walls. It's mm. it's really fascinating. I can't recommend this musical enough. There's so much to it and it's like so provocative. Yeah, I, if people want to see just to get a taste, they did a performance at the Tonys yes. that's on YouTube. Yeah, that and, you can watch. and Ado Annie is uh, played by a woman who is handicapped. It's like pretty incredible. Like It's just an incredible production. It is so different. I really recommend it. Um, but he is not so much sinister in the, in this production as he is, um, complicated, complicated and elusive and honestly sad kind of like he had been written off essentially. And he became the fact that he was a pawn between Laurie and Curly is a lot more obvious. So they, 
Damien Lindelof does not name people by accident, as we know from Lost, you know, the, sure. with all the character names. I mean, even beyond just like John Locke, there's a lot of... Uh, Desmond David Hume? Yeah, I mean, there's Hume, There's and there's characters, you know, throughout this, this show that have biblical allusions in their names or whatever, philosophers, uh, social commentators, like they have, there's connections all acro- across the map. So I'm just really curious to see what, whether or not it was just like a nod and then they, it basically sets up the ability to play Judd is dead at the mm-hmm. end, which is what plays over the scene of, of Don Johnson's character sort of swinging from the tree, or if there's something far more profound of it. Obviously, they named the first episode uh, Summer's Here We're Running Out of Ice, yeah. I think it is, and that's a line from Judd is dead. So the way in which Lindelof and his writing staff is interacting with text is going to be like a fascinating thing to see throughout the season, especially given the fact that it's going to be working for and against him with the comic book itself. Because the whole reason why I think this thing gets greenlit, the whole reason why people are watching in the first place is what's he going to do with this? Right. And then the other question to me is, assuming there is like a bigger connection between Watchmen and Oklahoma, like who is the Curly character? Right. Who is the person that you're supposed to root for, but also have like this the kernel of misgivings about. And I guess that in many shows that are about vigilantes or sort of superheroes in general, mm-hmm. it's it's complicated. It's like your hero. And then especially in this day and age, but there's an asterisk. Like I'm, I'm curious how that will play out throughout the rest of the show. Obviously it's complicated when, um, you know, the police force is kind of uh, parallel to yeah. society in, in a certain way and the kind of like the secrecy of it. But I also just think the scene of Don Johnson hanging with um, Lou Gossett Gossett Jr. Jr. next to him, you know, that obviously... And Lou Gossett Jr. is presumably the boy from the opening scene where the the Black Wall Street massacre takes place. Right. That all just seems too explicit and obvious and linear for Damon Lindelof, let alone like any good television show, that I'm I'm curious to understand um, how all of like the kind of black and and white... uh, archetypes of both a musical and a superhero novel yeah. are complicated. And because obviously the Seventh Cavalry talks about it, they're like the basically they're talking about ethnic cleansing in right. their in their in their kind of manifesto video and their propaganda video that, that Don Johnson plays at the police meeting. But there seems to be some societal norms that are different. Right. You know, like obviously like Don Johnson's doing bumps of cocaine in his <laughs> kitchen, but Everybody there is kind of like, you know, wipe your nose, but it's not like, how could the police chief be doing cocaine? This is a complete scandal. So I'm curious to see what kind of, like how little tweaks that they make to society like that, that are different. Obviously, everybody's driving electric cars. So like what, you know, like there's some sort of environmental aspect to it. Um, I can't imagine Don Johnson signed on for a pilot, by the way. So I'm also curious about like flashbacks. I'm sure he'll show up in flashbacks. How else we'll see him. Yeah. I mean, there's no way that he was like, cool, I'm on this for an hour. I'm in. Although there's, a, there, I think there is a history of that of of people coming in to do one or two episodes like that, and sometimes thinking. I mean, Sean Bean is the sure. sort of legendary one for Game of Thrones, where you would assume that he is going to be the hero of the show. Yeah, but he got a whole season. Sure. Yeah, that's true. I wanted to. It's, the thing I think is the most interesting that I wanted to end on is. It's cool to think about Lindelof and this show's relationship to the comic as this sacred text that they're also at once somewhat subverting and rejecting and disrupting because that is essentially what this new production of Oklahoma is doing because Oklahoma itself is high-key problematic. High-key, also super boring. I just want to note. But it's also just like, you know, it is an American institution that has not necessarily aged well even though like the actual hook in Oklahoma is pretty like still a banger. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, Oklahoma. (laughs) Okay. And then, and then, you know, the Watchmen itself, I, I think the comic, it's interesting that Rorschach in this show has become an avatar for the cavalry, for right. this, this, this domestic terror unit, essentially, because it's about how, whatever the original idea is, the idea, once it's out there, it can be perver- perverted, yes. basically. Yeah, and I, I think the things that are problematic are now interesting, and it's sort of like ripe for redefinition, mm-hmm. because similar to comic books, musicals are so intensely American and mm-hmm. so woven into a concept of post-World War II Americanness, like right around the same time that I think comics started like really gaining traction. And I say that yeah. based on the work of Michael Chabon and the Music <laughs> Avengers of Cavalier and Clay. And I think to reinterpret like along with making the defining 
violent event of Watchmen, the um, Black Wall Street Massacre, Mm -hmm. to reinterpret American history that way, like, kind of begs you to then reinterpret some of the, like, cultural Totemic kind of pieces of American art. Yeah. And so, like, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, country music was, like, worked into this in some way or, like, and then somehow, like, some mixed, remixed, essentially. Because there are so many, like, totems that we accept as, like, American that then just sort of if you're starting from a, a new place where we won the Vietnam War and the Black Wall Street Massacre is more important than, say, like, the Civil War, which I'm sure, like, that not rewriting that completely, but it's just, like, when you sort of make your your lampposts different, it then asks you to look at all these other things differently with a new kind of light. Well, that's what this, I think, in the last couple of years, that's what we've been asked to really talk about, is this yeah. idea of confrontation with truth, you know? And that that is especially hard in a world where, you know, there's an all-out assault on the idea of the truth. Yeah. But the idea is basically, like, let's take a really long, hard look about at, at some of the um, truly shameful moments in this country. And that the only way that we ever make a better one is to acknowledge that that stuff happened. And maybe there's, you know, we talk all the time about Trojan horses and backdooring stuff with genre fiction, but... If this is what it takes to get something like this on screen, I know that John Legend had talked about trying to bring this to screen and Damon Lindelof in interviews has talked about Regina King had wanted to bring Black Wall Street to screen in the first place. Um, You know, I think that there's a really, like, it's really striking to open up a show. People have been waiting years for this to happen. People are so excited about it being on the air. They're so curious about what it's going to be. And the first thing that everybody is going to see is this harrowing recreation of a moment in American history that a lot of people don't even know existed. Yeah. It also, it just, the I really liked the pilot. I also really admire it. I think it's like just rigorous in a way that a lot of television isn't and a lot of superhero techs or, or TV shows, movies aren't given credit for. Team Coppola? Team, <laughs> no, I just, I, it's not about if they're there no, or not, but just not, they're just not given the credit, you know? Yeah. And I really admire the ambition and like thought that went into this. I also do find it kind of overwhelming, like similar to even trying to like break down Oklahoma, like even trying to break down this episode of Watchmen into its parts is hard because there's so much happening. Yes. Um, on on so many levels. I think they landed it, at least for one episode. Well, I think that they didn't forget to make an entertaining episode of television. Right. There's several action scenes. The music is great. Regina it's, King is so She's engaging. a great lead. They have a great supporting cast around her. And I think that the way that they thread together the Jeremy Irons stuff and the Regina King stuff over oh the God, course of the season him. is going to be the big the sort of hardest thing to land I, is if you're going to have right. basically another show happening somewhere else, like how do you bring those, bring together. those together and how do you maintain basically an urgency to the episodes when you're trying to do so many different things? I was thinking about this as I watched last night. I was like, does someone like Damon Lindelof want his work to be considered together as like an Ubra or not? Like, oh, is, interesting. is that annoying to him or is that something he's like comfortable with? Because I do think the kind of like two shows within a show is very reminiscent of how Desmond was woven uh-huh. into Lost. And um, Do you mean like, do, does he want all of his shows considered as a body of work? Well, yeah, because there's a lot, you know, Allison also got at this in, in her piece and I think we're getting at it right now. You can trace a lot of like Damon's earlier work into Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And similarly, as I was watching last night, I was like, I'm really enjoying this because I feel like we're getting some real Regina King, Marcy Tidwell vibes. And we're also getting some real Jeremy Irons, Die Hard 3 vibes. Yes. And like, those are two acting performances I genuinely love. (laughs) And I felt like they were kind of like coming through a little bit. Maybe it's my own bias, but that was like the first, that was just sort of like what I thought of. I think that was generally the complaint about Leftovers is that it neglected the entertainment value of television. You know, and that, that even, and it was so dark and so meditative and so slow and that it introduced these high concepts, but then it was sort of like, you should almost be embarrassed about being caring about the concept. Right. That if you, you bring it in and you're just like, well, the, the sort of disappearing or the, I can't even remember what they called it on the leftovers, but that the vanishing of all these people is actually a metaphor. Right. Maybe. And cause it was, it was, there was so little explanation about it and they kind of abandoned a lot of like the government conspiracy elements of it and just sort of pushed forward with Nora's journey in right. it that it became more about like a, you know, a search for self rather than here's the story we're telling and we've really thought it out. I have to say like the accomplishment of the writing staff to obviously think out this alternate history and to think out like all these little like things like the squids falling, which is it from Watchmen, but like making that kind of a common everyday occurrence that people are annoyed about is, is just like such an amazing move. I mean, to, to really 
imagine a world that deeply is something that even though we've spent so much time talking about world building and watching watching these Marvel movies, like you don't really get the sense that a Marvel movie understands how transportation works on one of these planets. Right. You know, and that that you can tell the difference when you're watching something like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that um Watchmen feels like a good iteration on leftovers because they're Overall, comic books are, like, entertaining because yeah. there's so much action in them. And so if you pair the sensibility of thinking, of, like, rethinking history and, like, deep metaphors, but pair it with, like, uh, inherent action that comes from being based on comics, it's sort of, like, the ideal of, of like, a Damon Lindelof show. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better myself. Juliet, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks uh, for having me. We'll be back on Thursday. We'll have Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage. <laughs> from Looking for Alaska, the creative team behind Looking for Alaska, and I'm really excited to talk to them, and then Greenwald will also be joining. So talk to you guys Thursday. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by LaCroix. LaCroix sparkling water was developed to give health-conscious consumers refreshment, flavor, and sparkle. With zero calories, zero sweeteners, and zero sodium. Flavors include hibiscus, mango, passion fruit, and more. They're gluten free, vegan, kosher, non GMO, and Whole30 approved. LaCroix is a healthier alternative for you and your lifestyle and is available nationwide. For more information and a full list of retailers, visit lacroixwater.com and join the LaCroix community on social at LaCroix Water. <laughs> 